So good morning to you. Today is the 504th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and I think remembering these things in church history is so important to the church because we are so grateful for what God has done to allow us to receive the gospel. There have been so many attempts, endless attempts it would seem throughout history to snuff out the gospel and the truth and clarity of God's Word, but our great Savior has not let that happen. And so we are, we are blessed and we celebrate that together today. Let me pray for us and then we'll begin together. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the faith once for all delivered to the saints and how You have ordained and empowered faithful men and women through down through history to communicate the Gospel to the church as a whole, but also families and children. And Father, we are grateful for Your work among us as Your church. We pray that You would stir us in the truth today. We pray that You would energize us by Your Spirit. Convict us for our apathy. Give us insight to the big picture of what is going on in heavenly places and what Your plan is for the ages. And may we by Your grace engage in the spiritual warfare that has been going on for centuries. Father, we pray that You would use us to continue to pass on the pure Gospel for generations to come and for the people in our community. For Your glory we ask these things. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. <clears throat> More than 450 years ago, a request came to John Calvin to write on the character of and the need for reform in the church. The circumstances were quite different from those that inspired other writings of Calvin and enable us to see other dimensions of his defense of the Reformation. The emperor, Charles V, was calling the Diet of the Holy Roman Empire to meet in the city of Spire in 1544. Martin Bucer, the great reformer of Strasbourg, appealed to Calvin to draft a statement of doctrines of the necessity for the Reformation. The result was remarkable. Theodore Beza, Calvin's friend and successor in Geneva, called the necessity for reforming the church, that was the document Calvin wrote, the necessity for reforming the church, the most powerful work of his time. Calvin organizes the work into three large sections. The first section is devoted to the evils in the church that required reformation. The second details the particular remedies to those evils adopted by the reformers. The remedies adopted by the reformers. The third part shows why reform could not be delayed, but rather how the situation demanded instant amendment. In each of these three sections, Calvin focuses on four topics which he calls the soul and body of the church. 
The soul of the church is worship and salvation. The body of the church is its sacraments and government. The great cause of reform for Calvin centers in these four topics. The evils, remedies, and necessity for prompt action to all things related to worship, salvation, sacraments or ordinances, and church government. The great cause of reform for Calvin centers in these topics. The importance of these topics for Calvin is highlighted when we remember that he was not responding to attacks in these four areas, but chose them himself as the most important aspects of the Reformation. That's an excerpt taken from an article by Robert Godfrey about the Protestant Reformation. But I want you to note the four areas of the need for Reformation in Calvin's day. Worship. How does the church worship? What do they believe about salvation? The way of salvation. How are the ordinances understood and practiced? And how is the church led? Four areas of the life of the church that really, we would all say, need ongoing reform. It's so easy for us as sinners to drift from what the New Testament designs for us. And that's the same kind of reform that is called for by the Apostle Paul in the letter of 1 Timothy that we've been noticing. Church leadership. Salvation. How does a church gather in fellowship and worship together? And certainly the consequence of those understandings would also flow into their practice of the ordinances. No surprise what Paul required Timothy to reform by the grace of God, by the Spirit in the Ephesian church is the same thing that needed reform in Calvin's day. Same thing that needs reform in our day. What happens... What happens when God begins then to do a work of reform in a local church? What happens when their worship is changing to conform to Scripture? When salvation is being understood as the apostles gave it? When the ordinances are being practiced in a way that honors Christ? When, when leadership is, is becoming conformed to the Scriptures? What happens? What happens when those things are being corrected and they are being brought more and more into conformity with the pattern and message of the New Testament? Well, one of the things that happens is that the evil one is going to work hard to resist that progress, right? It's always been that way. The location doesn't matter. The time doesn't matter. The size of the people in the local church, it doesn't matter. Wherever God is transforming and reforming a people through His Word, the evil one will work hard to war against that gospel advancement. For example, another gifted reformer, Martin Luther, personally experienced and expressed in a profound way the resistance and attack of the evil one in the process of reforming the church. If you've done any reading with Calvin or listening to the things that he's talked about, you will soon discover his violent um, occasions under the attack of the evil one. He writes about it maybe more than any other reformer. And you see that in his famous song that we sung this morning, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. 
listen carefully again as I, as I read the lyrics to you. Notice how much of the content of this song is about spiritual warfare. A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper He, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Here it is. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft. It's crafty, scheming, skillful, and power are what? It's great. And it's armed with cruel hate on earth, among us, is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts, his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world, it goes on, right? Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim. Who's that? The evil one, right? We tremble not for him. Why? His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell Him. That word above all earthly powers. No no thanks to them abides. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sides. Let goods and kindred go. Listen to that phrase. This mortal life also. The body, they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Listen to the commitment in that verse. Because Martin Luther knew the right man was on his side. He was willing even to give up life to see the truth progress in the bigger plan of God's work. See, these words were not some romantic plateau of of feeling for Martin Luther. They were a daily reality to him. Do you live like spiritual warfare is a daily reality? Do you? Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you live your life like you are on a battleground or a playground? Because the Scripture says you're on a battleground. Every day of your life as a believer is a battleground. And one of the main schemes of Satan is to tempt God's people to think that there really isn't much of a war going on to be concerned about and to be prepared for. The Lord in His goodness has begun to do a work of reformation among us, little by little, over the years. He has been reforming our understanding and practice of worship, salvation, Ordinances, church leadership, it's all been at work. God is at work in us. There's been lots of changes. Some of those changes have seen people leave. Others come. God is at work. God has been increasing our understanding and conviction about His means of salvation. Scripture alone. Grace alone. Faith alone. Christ alone. For the glory of God alone. You are committed to that. God has been conforming us in our fellowship to submit to the authority of Scripture in everything, one step at a time, one week at a time, one year at a time. And that means our local church is in the war. 
Right? That's what it means. We are involved in the same war that Martin Luther was in. That war began in Genesis 3, didn't it? When the evil one came to Adam and Eve and said what? Did God really say? And that war will end in Revelation 2. And if you're a believer, you are in that war for the truth. It is the war for truth and for salvation. And it's really all that matters. Like Martin Luther said, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. You see, because the truth is the way to God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Every true believer, every true church is in the war and will fight many battles until the Lord returns. And God has good works for us to accomplish in His strength for the advancement of the Gospel in this community. And so the evil one has been attacking us and wants to discourage us and stop us in the Gospel advances that God has granted to us. He does that with every true church and every true believer. There's no exception. So here's another question for you as we prepare to look at this text this morning. Have you become alert to the war and the specific efforts that the evil one is making to resist what God is doing among us and in your life? Are you aware of it? Are you awake to it? Do you see it? It's become more and more obvious to me in the last couple of years in particular. There's been a great war waged on the church in general and on individual believers because of the events that have gone on in our lives. Beloved, we need to get our heads and our hearts in the battle and be committed to warring against the evil one by the grace which God supplies. And Ephesians 6 will inform our thinking about this war and equip us to battle spiritually. The Holy Spirit will transform us by His Word and His conviction and His power. And so, we have before us this morning a text that is full of good news. God has provided everything we need to get our heads and hearts in the battle and to persevere and keep on seeing gospel progress in our lives and the life of our church and the win and to win the war. It's all found in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Before we look there, I want to I want one more thing I hope to clarify for us before we begin to look at the verses, and, and that is the big picture about this war. When we talk about spiritual warfare, sometimes we, we think about it very in a very foggy way, like what is going on? Because it's not a physical war that you fight with your hands and weapons of, of, of metal. So what is this war? What is it? What are the battles? What does it mean to win? What does it mean to lose? To answer these questions, I want to compare the spiritual warfare with World War II. And I know this comparison is far from perfect, but I hope, I hope you'll understand the point that I'm trying to make. When you think about World War II, 
you think of the overall war during the 1940s, and we call that overall war World War II, right? But in that one war, there were different fronts, right? There's the European front. There's the Asian front, and so on. And even in those fronts, among those fronts, there were many, many, many different battles. Like Normandy, famous battle, the European front. Or Iwo Jima, famous battle on the Asian front. That's a physical war, and it kind of subdivides down like that. It's against flesh and blood, but, but the Scriptures tell us that our war, this spiritual war, it isn't against flesh and blood. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 say, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Actually, it makes it a far more dangerous war when we cannot see or touch our enemy. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see, World War II is a physical war fought by hand. The spiritual war is a spiritual war and it's fought by ideas and truth versus lies and in a realm that you cannot see. For us, the overall spiritual war is... God's eternal work of salvation. That war is not being decided, dear ones. This is part of why I want to break it down for you like this. It's already been won through Christ. It's it's won. The big war has won. The big spiritual war that encompasses all of God's saving plan and redemption, it's already won through Christ. Yet, the victory that Christ has won is progressively being proclaimed and realized in the world through time. In fact, there were people following World War II that were still fighting and they hadn't learned that the victory had already been signed. It's kind of like that. The victory has been won. Christ has crushed the head of the serpent on the cross once and for all. Now the victory of that war is being proclaimed in the world. Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. There's a prophecy of when the the victory would be visualized. It was already won eternally, right? Because the cross is not a thing only limited to time. It's an eternal effect. But that's when God revealed it. 1 John 3.8 Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to what? destroy the works of the devil. The Son of God has appeared and He has destroyed the works of the devil. The battle is already won. Hebrews 2.14 Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death He, Christ, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. It's done. And what we're waiting for is the complete manifestation of that victory. Romans 16.20 talks about that day. The God of peace will what? Soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. When Christ died on the cross, that was the manifestation of His crushing of Satan under His feet. And one day, that victory will be completely realized when God crushes Satan under the feet of all of His church. But there's more to the war than just the overall big picture of the war. 
that has already been won by Christ. There's, there's different fronts of the war. The individual lives of God's chosen people as they progress through, through justification and sanctification and on to glorification are the different fronts of the war. Individual believers have a part in this war. And there's many different battles on each front. Those are the day-to-day battles each individual believer has with the evil one. Ephesians 6.12, we'll look at it later on, talks about us wrestling. That's that's hand-to-hand, close-up mortal combat. That's what you and I experience as believers every day of our lives. Now, I'm not suggesting that the individual salvation of God's chosen people is undecided or contingent. No. The Christian life and victory of each believer has already been decided as well. That's Romans 8.30, right? The one whom He foreknew, He also called. Those whom He called, He what? Justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. That's That's the individual believer's part in the war. It's the Christian life. All who are truly in Christ will share in Christ's victory. But that doesn't mean that we sit back and relax and let what's going to happen happen without our engagement in the battle. That doesn't mean that we don't fight in the war with all the strength that God provides to us. Your salvation, listen carefully, your salvation is proven by your engagement in this war. The war is the Christian life. Your front of the war is the Christian life. The life of salvation and justification and sanctification on to glorification. The progress of the Christian life. That's the war. That's the war in your, in your front. The Apostle Paul often compared the Christian life to a military conflict. 2 Timothy 2.4 2, uh, 2, 2, says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. He also told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, fight the good fight of the faith. Lay hold of eternal life. Isn't that a very interesting call to war? So if you're not in the war, what does that mean? You're not a believer. That's what that means. Unbelievers will lose this war because they're not even in the war. And they're not engaged in the daily battles against the evil one. Unbelievers are not in the war against Satan. Only believers are. Satan does not want to hinder the depravity of an unbeliever. Right? Let at it. Go. It'll take you where I want you to go. But he does want to hinder the sanctification of a believer. Right? He wants to do everything he can to push against God's work in the believer. And your salvation is proven and demonstrated by your engagement in the war. Your faith is shown to be real by your fighting the daily battles against the evil one and his schemes. Now as a believer, you're going to lose some daily battles, right? We all do. We lose them. We give in to temptation. We give in to fear and so on. And we win some daily battles by God's grace. And as the Holy Spirit matures you into the image of Christ, you're going to lose less battles along the way. Right? And you're going to win more along the way. That's what sanctification is all about. And those daily battles will add up in a believer's life to the winning of the overall war in your Christian walk. 
And you'll win the war of your Christian walk because of the saving work of Christ and the sovereign grace of God at work in your life. And because Christ has already decisively crushed Satan in the cosmic war of redemption. Do you see how this fits together? That's what, that's what the spiritual war is all about. Therefore, like Paul said to Timothy, you must fight the good fight of the faith. Lay hold, take hold of eternal life to which you have been called. 1 Timothy 6.12 If you lose the spiritual war that Paul is talking about, that means you were never in the war and were never a believer. If you, if you profess to be, be in the war, but, but do not persevere in it to the end, but give in to the schemes of Satan and abandon the faith, what does that mean? That means you're apostate. That's what Paul's been talking about in 1 Timothy 4. That's to lose the war. See, Christians will win this war. Yeah, they may lose daily battles, but overall they're going to win the war because Christ has won it for us. If you live your life day in and day out, losing the battles against sin and do not care to overcome sin, but would rather continue in sin and cover it up, then the Bible says you're not a believer. You're not in the war. But if you're battling against the attacks of the evil one by the strength and equipment that God provides, and you persevere to the end of the war, even though you may lose many battles and become broken and bloody in the fight against Satan and sin, then that means you're a believer. You've been called. You're in the Lord's army. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. And you will be victorious in the overall war because Christ has won it already. That's what that means. So the cosmic war is the war of salvation. The individual war is the Christian life. The battles are the daily wrestlings against the evil one. Believers battle against the evil one by faith to the end. Believers will win this war because Christ has won it for them already through His life, death, and resurrection. We fight, we could say it this way, we fight from victory to victory. But but only the true believer fights the good fight of the faith. So let's take a look this morning at Paul's explanation of spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, 10-20. Would you stand with me? And let's read this text together. Ephesians 6, 10-20. And we're going to look at just... Maybe we'll take two Sundays to do this. Lord willing. Would you read in unison with me Ephesians 6, 10-20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. 
praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the Gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. You may be seated. The main idea of this text, and I'll show you where these commands are, but I believe is this. Be strong in the Lord, dear ones, and put on God's armor so that you may be able to stand in the war. Be strong in the Lord. Put on God's armor so that you may be able to stand in the war. A teaching outline has four points. And it seeks to answer the question, how do we do that? How do we do that? First, enjoy the ability for the war. Second, envision the adversary in the war. Third, employ the armor for the war. And fourth, engage in the activity of the war. Let's look this morning back verses 10 and 11. I want you to notice the main commands of this text. First, you see right in, t- in verse 10, be strong. Second, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God. Verse 13, take up the whole armor of God. Verse 14, stand. Verse 16, take up. All these commands from our general, are about fighting the good fight of the faith. Battling the evil one as we live the Christian life. Be strong in the Lord. And put on God's armor so that you may be able to stand in the war. How do we do that? Number one, enjoy the ability for the war. We look at all those commands and we see Be strong. Stand. And we ask, how do I do that? When we begin to consider our foe, the evil one, and what sin lies within us and what is around us in the world, and we think, how in the world? And then when we begin to feel crushed by all of the trials and temptations of this life, how in the world can I stand? How can I be strong? And what we need to understand is exactly what Paul says here, You can be strong in the Lord. What does that mean? Well, that is a common phrase all throughout the Ephesian epistle. And it's talking, letter A, about your position in Christ. This is the only way you can stand. This is the only way you can have strength to fight against the schemes of the evil one. It's because of your position in Christ. Look at Ephesians with me. Chapter 1, and you can just let your eyes go down. We need to look back at some of the phrases in these first chapters. You remember, we've talked about this a lot of times, Ephesians 1-3 through of the letter of Ephesians talks about your position in Christ. Who are you now that you have been born again? Who are you because you are a child of God? And then Ephesians 4-6 through talks about your practice. How you to live because of who you are. That's the way Paul always constructs his letters, or most commonly. 
First, who are you in Christ? Second, how are you to live because of who you are? Your ability to be strong and stand in the war against the evil one does not come from yourself. It comes from your position in Christ. It is so helpful when you are under the attack of the evil one and you recognize it and you, you hear God's commands for you of how to live in this, in this wicked world. It is so helpful to step back and get the big picture and answer that question again. Who am I in Christ? How, how is it that God is for me? What are the details of that? If you look in Ephesians 1, you will see that you as a child of God in Christ have every spiritual blessing in heaven. Every spiritual blessing in heaven. I mean, every gracious supply that God has in heaven in Christ is available to you. You've been, what are they? You've been chosen by God. And you've been chosen to be holy and blameless in His presence someday. Just think about the security of that phrase. God has chosen you in history, in past, in eternity, and He's redeemed you in time so that you will be holy and blameless in His presence in the future. That is security. That reminds you, I will win this war. Right? Doesn't it? You've been predestined for adoption as sons and daughters in love. And that predestination, again, that's something that's timeless. The war happens in time. But God's salvation is eternity. In the past, He predestined you not only to become a child of God in time, but to become completely adopted in eternity so that one day your body and your, 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 your mind, your spirit would all be perfected and reflect the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been redeemed from sin. You've been redeemed from sin's penalty. You've been redeemed from sin's power in your life. You've been, and you will be redeemed from sin's presence in your life. All by Christ's blood. And that, that payment will not go unrewarded. Right? It will be completed. You've been forgiven all of your trespasses by the riches of His grace. All of your sin, past, present, and future, forgiven. So that sets you up to stand against Satan's accusations, right? You have the revelation of His will for all time in Christ. You open the Word and you see God's plan for the ages. You've been reconciled to God the Father in Christ and you will be part of the union of all things someday that will be for the praise of the glory of God. You have an inheritance in the glory of God. Right now, you fall short of the glory of God, but because God has chosen you and redeemed you and set you apart, one day you are going to perfectly reflect the glory of God and enjoy it forever. You've been sealed. You've been possessed. You are owned by the Holy Spirit. That's your position in Ephesians chapter 1. That's why you can stand with power in the evil war, in the evil day. And you realize all of this is your eternal position. The moment you heard the gospel of your salvation and trusted in Christ. So it's your present possession. It's not something you're waiting for. It's your present possession. Ephesians 2 says you, you are the object now of God's mercy and love in spite of who you were. 
Ephesians 2 tells you who you were. Dead in trespasses and sins. Objects of God's wrath. Sons of disobedience. But now, no longer. You've been made alive together with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. You're seated with Christ in heavenly places. There's security for you. You're the object of God's immeasurable riches of kindness. You've been saved by His grace. Rescued. Loved by Him. You've become His workmanship. He's creating you into what He wants you to be and for the good works that He's planned for you. You've been brought near to God by Christ's blood. You've been reconciled to God in peace. No longer is there enmity between you and God. There's peace because of Christ. You have access to the Father in the Spirit. You can come before the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. All of this is in Ephesians 2 now. Fellow citizens with the saints, you are a member of the household of God. You are a building block in the holy temple of the Lord. You are a dwelling place for God. Ephesians 3, you are fellow heirs with Christ. The will is set. You are a fellow heir with Christ. You are members of the body of Christ. You are partaker of the promises of the gospel in Christ. You have now a place of boldness and access and confidence before the Father. There is, in just a few moments, your position that's explained in Ephesians 1-3. through That's who you are. Now, part of spiritual warfare is setting back and opening your Bible and begin to study and understand what those things mean for you and what kind of security and power they provide to you for the spiritual warfare. You need it. That's why the Apostle Paul prays. He says, I pray that God would open your minds and give you understanding and enlightenment so that you would understand these things. Because they're part of what God is doing in your life. When you get discouraged in the battle against the schemes of the devil, it is essential that you step back and take a look at the big picture of God's redemptive plan for all time and eternity and recognize your position in that plan. Remember, the war is already won. And you've been chosen to be part of that plan if you are a believer. That's exactly what Paul does for us. Your position in Christ is your ability for each battle and the whole Christian war. Your position in Christ is your guarantee that while you may lose some battles along the way, and you will, that you will win the whole war. Your position in Christ is your encouragement to keep on fighting the good fight of the faith because you're fighting from victory to victory. You belong to Christ. You belong to the Father. You are loved in Christ. You will be victorious over Satan in Christ. This is God's plan for the ages to bring glory to Christ. This is God's plan for you to bring glory to Christ. That's your ability for the war. How can I stand? Because of my position in Christ. But secondly, letter B, because of your power, the power in Christ. Notice what he says. Finally, be strong. How do I do that? Because I'm in the Lord and in the strength of His might. So you don't fight this battle, this spiritual battle with your might, your strength, your mental skill, your prowess, your ability to endure. You fight it with His strength. That whole concept of appropriating the strength of God and understanding and and asking for it and experiencing it is something we need to grow in our understanding and experience. 
living in the strength which God supplies. If you're positioned in Christ, then you have available to you power in Christ. You have available to you all the power of Christ to win the battles against the evil one and the war of the Christian life. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 again, verse 15. I want to read verse 15 through 23 to you. I want you to think carefully with me what Paul, about what Paul says here is your available power. He's, he's established our position. But now look at the power that is yours to fight the good fight of the faith. Verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and look at this, verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. That's the power that Paul is talking about here in verse 10. What is that power? Look back at verse 19. This power is toward you who believe according to, this is is explaining the power, according to the working of His great might, God the Father's great might, when He worked in Christ, that He worked in Christ, when He raised Him from the dead, and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Consider that power. God's power that worked in Christ rose Him from the dead. That's some power, yes? Can you raise someone from the dead? I can't. He rose Him from the dead. And not only that, caused Him to be victorious, caused Him to conquer in a military sense all things in the universe. Is that some power? This is the activity of Genesis 3.15 being fulfilled where, where God crushed Satan under the foot of Christ on the cross and seated Him above Satan. That's what we read here when He says in verse 21, look at it, above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He's talking about Satan, all the demons, all those other powers in the world. Christ was seated above ruling as Lord over all of them. Did that take some power? Absolutely did. Did it take some power to raise Christ from the dead? Yes. And think of the eternal power that is not only in this age, but the one that's to come. I mean, He's conquered enemies that we don't maybe even know you know about. Christ conquered it all through the power of God. Look back at what He said there in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? That's the power you have available to you. Does that sink in? That doesn't sink in very well, does it? That's powerful. 
To be able to overcome sin, to be able to overcome doubt, to be able to overcome fear, to be able to overcome discouragement from the evil one, that's the power available to us. Because why? You are positioned in Christ. And Christ contains that. Christ possesses that power. So now it's yours. It's yours. Verse 22 again, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Yes! We have Christ as our head, which is His body. Look at this. The fullness of Him. So the fullness of Christ is what? Fills all in all. So we have the fullness of Christ filling us. The power of Christ set as Lord over all timelessly is available to us. So finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, in your position, and in the strength of His might. Does that make sense? Oh, Father, let us realize this. Let us experience this in the day-to-day battles. Ephesians 3, 14-21, you've got to see this too. Ephesians 3, 14. <clears throat> Paul goes at it again with this prayer and he explains the power that is available to us because of our position in Christ. Verse 14 of chapter 3, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be, say the next word, strengthened with what? Power through His Spirit in your inner being. Remember, this isn't, this isn't a battle of flesh and blood. This is a battle of the mind, the heart, ideas, truth, lies. So we need to be strengthened in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Verse 17, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength then to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that again you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Both of those prayers are very similar. Do you see? You have the power of Christ available to you for the daily battles which will lead to the overall victory because Christ has filled you with Himself. Through the Spirit, you have His strength available to you. Verse 20, And because of that, to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, more than you could even talk about or imagine, according to the what? Power that works in us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We're getting set up to use the armor. We're getting set up to proclaim the Gospel because that's what it's all about. And before we do that, we need to enjoy the power, the ability for the war. John 16.33 says, I have said these things to you, Jesus speaking, I have said these things to you that in Me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. 1 John 4.4 Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. You see, the same power by which Christ overcame the world and overcame all things and the prince of this world Himself is in you because you are in Christ. You see? Your position in Christ fills you with the power of Christ so that now you have the ability for the war. Rejoice in that. 
Think upon it. Meditate on it. Study it. Let it fill you. Comprehend it by the Holy Spirit. And be strong in the Lord and put on God's armor so that you may be able to stand in the war. So enjoy the ability for this war. Number two, and we're just going to look at the first point of number two this morning and then we'll, we'll conclude and share the Lord's Supper together. We can be strong as we stand by envisioning, number two, the adversary in the war. Envisioning the adversary in the war. This is verse 11 through 13, but we're just going to look at some things in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The schemes of the devil. Letter A, your adversary in the war is the devil. And he is a schemer. Who is the devil? Who is he? Boy, hasn't our culture done a good job of making him look ridiculous? He's not ridiculous. We, we really need to see who he is. And the Apostle Paul takes three verses here to describe what we are up against. Who is the devil? The word devil means slanderer, accuser. Revelation 12, 7-11 calls him the accuser of the brethren. He's always sending out accusation to condemn God's people. He's called Satan. That means adversary. 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9 calls him the adversary who is like a lion walking about seeking someone to devour. He is called the tempter, or you see him as the tempter. Matthew 4, 3, where he, he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He's a murderer. He's a liar. John 8, 44 calls him a murderer and a liar. You realize what his intention is? He intends to separate people from God. He wants to kill and forever damn the image bearers of God. And he does that by lying to us. Lying to people. Getting them to believe what isn't true. The Bible calls him a lion seeking to devour. 1 Peter 5.8 The Bible calls him a serpent and a dragon. Genesis 3.1 Revelation 12.9 Those two symbols recognize his skill, his craft, and his power. Just like Martin Luther said, no one on earth can compete with him. Angel of light, he's called. Angel of light. 2 Corinthians 11, 13-15. Why is he called an angel of light? Well, he's deceptive. He doesn't come to you with something that looks repulsive or sounds repulsive. He comes to you with something that looks wonderful and is appealing. He's way smarter than that to give you a hunk of gunk, right? He, he's going to show you something wonderful. And Eve, right? A, a perfect, innocent human being says, Wow, that looks great. And she believes him. The Bible calls him the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4 4. Why? Because in God's providence, he has been given power and a certain level of dominion in this world, in this age. 
He is a powerful foe. He is a power. In and of ourselves, we are no match for him in this war. Think how old he is. Think about how many human beings he has observed. Think about how well he knows human beings and how to create a lure that is fitted for each one of us perfectly. He is a formidable foe. But he's no match for Christ. John 14.30, Jesus says, I will talk no longer very much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. I love the next phrase. Jesus says, He has no claim on me. That implies that Satan has no power over Christ. Christ is more powerful than the devil. Infinitely so. It, you see, that's why I don't like the yin and yang symbol. Right? What does that mean? That means that the earth, the universe, is held in balance by two equal powers. And that's the way life works itself out in balance and harmony. That's not true. That's not true at all. God exists without Satan. And God is infinitely more powerful than Satan. God, Christ created the devil. But Christ created him as a sinless angel with all the other angels. And the devil became perverted with pride and was thrown out of heaven with his demonic followers. Isaiah 14 speaks of this. And in Christ and through Christ's provisions to us, we are also able to overcome the evil one and be kept from his schemes. But Paul wants his readers, he wants the Spirit of God wants us to understand that, that while Christ is more powerful than Satan, we have a powerful foe. John Calvin wrote, Paul shows him as formidable, not to scare us, but to quicken our diligence and earnestness. We are tempted to either sloth or terror. Paul calls us to be alert. That's the point. Well, why do we have to be alert for Satan? Because he is a crafty schemer. Notice what the text says here. The schemes. We can stand. We are to stand against the schemes of the devil. He's a crafty schemer. Even from the Garden of Eden, he was so. Genesis 3.1 says, Now the serpent was more, what? Crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. It's not an accident that Satan took on the form of a serpent. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. Right? And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is he Satan is a deceitful, crafty schemer seeking to murder the image bearers of God, separate them from God forever by his schemes and lies and deceptions. And he's been doing his hideous work in the world for thousands of years. He knows what he's doing. He's skillful at it. What are Satan's schemes of attack? Do you know what they are? Do you recognize them? In 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul calls the Corinthian church to action so that, he says, we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. Do you hear that? 
We don't want to be outwitted by Satan, so it is important to not be ignorant of his designs. What are they? Well, I, there's no way I can tell you what they all are because, again, what are we dealing with here? We're dealing with the evil one. And he's not really something that we can just compartmentalize and, hey, we've got him down. No. But I'm going to give you a few, few things, a few lists, or a list of a few of his designs that I've seen in Scripture and observed in experience. When we think of our enemy, we usually think of three things, right? The world, the flesh, the devil. But in, in, in one sense, we have an ultimate enemy, the evil one, who employs his attacks upon us through the world and the flesh. And through his demonic army. He appeals to our flesh, to our fallen humanness, to tempt us to sin. How does he attack using the world and demons and luring your flesh? One of the things is, and, and I'll make this easy for you to remember, hopefully, I've got 14 of them, 13 or 14, but they all start with D, okay? Maybe this will help us to remember, think about it, take it with us through the week a little bit. They all start with D and because devil and demons, and so here's his designs. He uses doubt. Adam and Eve, right? In the garden, Genesis 3. He causes us to doubt the character of God. Just like he did Adam and Eve. Did God, did, did God really say? God even knows that in the day you eat, you'll be like Him, knowing good and evil. What was Satan doing? He was casting doubt on the goodness of God so that Adam and Eve would begin to think, man, what is God but a stingy, uh, power-hungry guy who wants to hold back something good from me every time we sin? It's because we doubt the goodness of God and His will for us. Just like Adam and Eve. Denial. Outright denial of God's truth. He tempts us to do that. We read something in the Bible. That can't be true. We hear someone confront us with the truth of God. I, 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 no, I'm not hearing that. Denial. When you doubt God's character, doubt God's Word, or deny God's Word, that is the evil one at work. Let's see it that way. Disobedience. He tempts us to sin. Every time He tempts us to do something other than God's will for our lives, He's tempting us to disobedience. Again, Adam and Eve. How about discouragement? 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, Paul talks about a thorn in the flesh. Discouragement can come to us from so many different angles and want to crush us and halt us from serving the Lord the way He calls us to. Paul's case, it was a thorn in the flesh. I don't know what it was, but it was a demonic messenger. Could be illness, could be a loss of job, could be a difficult spouse, could be a whatever. Discouragement from the things of God. How about distraction? 1 John 2, 15-17 says, Love not the world. You know, not all of Satan's attacks against God's people are negative things. Many of them are our positive worldly progress that distracts us from being who God has called us to be. Wow, I got a great big raise at work. I got a different job that's just demanding so much. This is awesome. I love all man. I can just give my wife all the money she wants. Right? So many different things in the world. Those things aren't bad, but Satan can use them as a distraction. How about dismay or fear? The word for fear and anxiety, worry, terror, dismay. First Peter five six through nine. 
Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Cast all your anxiety on Him. There is an adversary who wants to devour people right in the context of anxiety. Dismay. Destruction. Think of Job. Think of Joseph. Satan wanted to crush these men. He asked God's permission, but he wanted to crush them. Crush. I mean, took Job's kids, took Job's health, took Job's wealth. Joseph, thrown in prison. Two years. I mean, one thing after another. Crushing. He wants to destroy God's people. But in the end, jo- Joseph said it, Genesis 50-20, what God meant for e- for no. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Right? So doubt, denial, disobedience, discouragement, distraction, dismay, destruction. How about disunity? That's one of Satan's devices. In fact, that's the context of 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11, where Paul tells the Corinthian church, we are not ignorant of his devices. I want you to forgive that brother. I've forgiven him. Don't let Satan disunify you in the forgiveness of this issue. Boy, Satan wants to attack us that way. Keeping people at enmity with each other. I won't forgive. I won't make it right. I won't seek out that brother or sister. When you see that happening in the body of Christ, that is the work of the evil one. How about deception? 1 Timothy 4, 1-5. We were just talking about this recently where Satan has his, his demonic influences in the world and he wants to pull people away from the truth with the lie. How about dependence on self? Dependence upon self. That's one of his devices. Matthew 16, 22-23 shows us the life of Peter and how Peter said to Jesus, hey, you're not going to the cross. I'll take the cross for you. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You don't know the things of God. You're thinking in terms of human and life and just, just material, human things. You don't know the purposes of God. Jesus told Satan, Satan or Jesus told, told Peter, Satan would desire to have you to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail, and when you are restored, strengthen your brothers. You see, he comes at us and tempts us to depend upon ourselves. How about distance? He, he wants to that isn't isn't that how wolves work? They, they look for the one that's struggling in the flock and separates them. Get them away from the body, get them away from the herd. John 10, 1 through 18 talks about that. When you see people falling away from the body of Christ and distancing themselves from the fellowship and the strength of the flock that God provides to them, that is a work of the evil one. You see that in John 10. How about disgrace? Internal disgrace. Again, Revelation 12.10. When Satan Satan tempts you and he he, he accuses you and he says, look at all your sin. You're not acceptable to God. Condemnation is all over you. Boy, that's the work of the evil one. He wants you to feel guilty when Christ has laid your guilt on Himself on the cross. External external disgrace. 1 Timothy 3.7 talks about that where where he tries to, to take the leadership of God's church and disgrace them before the church and the world with sin. That's one of Satan's ploys. 1 Timothy 3.7 The last one, discontent. Discontent. James 1. 14 through 15 talks about how, how he lures people away with their own desires, what they want. 
and causes them to forget, verse 18, that God is the giver of every good gift. God won't let me have that. I can't be happy without that. God won't let me have that now. I need it now. That's a work of the evil one. That was what Jesus battled against with Satan, right? Satan tempted Jesus, eat the bread now. Have the kingdoms now. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You know, he, he was only to have those things as the Son of Man in God's time and in God's way. So there's a few. I'm sure there's many more. Doubt, denial, disobedience, discouragement, distraction, dismay, distrust, destruction, disunity, deception, dependence on self, distance. Disgrace, discontent. Child of God, when you experience these things, do you understand what's happening to you? Do you recognize these things that are they're attacked from the evil one? Or you just see them as a simple, normal human situation in the unfolding of time? There's more about this than what meets the eye. We have a scheming and skillful foe that desires to devour us and we need to be aware of and alert to what he is doing. And praise the Lord by His grace We have everything we need in Christ to recognize the schemes of the devil for what they are and defeat him. This text shows it so. This is what this text is all about. Be strong in the Lord and put on God's armor that you may be able to stand in the war. Number one, enjoy the ability for the war, your position and your power. Envision the enemy for the war. Scheming devil. And we'll talk next week. We're going to have to stop here for today, but Lord willing, we'll pick up there next week and look at the the devil's army, the demonic army. But as we close, let me ask you to consider why is it important to learn about this spiritual war and how to fight well? Why is it even important? Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we'd ask or think, according to the power at work in us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. It's important so that we will realize the complete joy of God doing in us and through us far more than we could ask or even imagine. So that we can realize the complete joy of God's power at work in us. And so that God will be glorified in our lives as we grow in Christ-likeness and see others come to know Christ as Savior. That's why we're here, isn't it? What is God going to do through you by His power in this community, in this time? What is God going to do in your life to grow you into the image of Christ? And we have heaven before us. Well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, I want this to be realized in my life, don't you? I want to be ready. I want to fight. I want to win. And we will by the grace of God. We're fighting from victory to victory. Are you a believer today? Do you know Christ as your Savior? If not, Ephesians 2 describes you, described all of us before Christ, dead in your trespasses and sins. You're piled at the bottom of a grave with sin. God calls you in that text a child of wrath. You know what that means? I don't want you to be a child of wrath. But if you're still in your sin, unforgiven, without Christ, you're a child of wrath. That means one day you are going to experience the wrath of God if you don't turn from your sin and trust in Christ and get in the war. You will. That's what what God says. But you don't have to stay there. 
Because God is able to raise you up with Christ and seat you in heavenly places. You can be saved by grace. God will grant you the faith, the spiritual sight, the ability to trust in Christ because He lived for your righteousness. He died for your atonement. He rose to give you everlasting life. It's there for you. Will you trust in Christ today? Him alone? Take, take your trust off of yourself. Quit trusting in yourself. All your religious works and all your trying to be good enough and trying to, to keep everything in line for God, it doesn't work. God is only satisfied with one kind of righteousness and that's His own. But He will give it to you freely because He's rich in mercy. He's kind. He's gracious. And He will receive the glory for your salvation. Trust in Christ. And you too will get in the war and know the victory at the end of it and be able to enjoy eternal life with our Father and our older brother Christ and the family of God forever. And that's good news. Would you stand and pray with me today? Our Father, we've only begun to see what's in this text. And I pray that You would strengthen us to understand, just like Paul prays, help us to understand what is the hope to which we've been called. What is our position in Christ? What is the power available to us? Give us eyes to see, hearts to understand. And Father, make us alert and awake. Help us to watch and pray that we would not be ignorant of the evil one's devices. And help us not to react in fear and not to react in apathy. But to, but to be alert and awake and put on the armor so that You may be glorified in our lives. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.